Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 198 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. For the second week in a row, we get to talk about team culture. Uh, Today, we're talking with Michelle Falcon about building a people-first business and owning the dinner table. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Smokeball, New Law Business Model, and Clio. We wouldn't be able to do the show without their support, so please stay tuned, and we'll tell you more about them later on. Since last week, we have launched a couple of things that we're excited to announce. Uh, Lawyerist Lab class number three started this week, and we are super excited to have a new cohort of people participating in the Lawyerist Lab training program, and we're excited to start getting to know them. You know what? I keep seeing posts in the Lawyerist Insider Facebook group where people are asking questions that have really big answers, where we have a program to answer those questions. And I don't want to be pushy about marketing, but like, We have built the answer to the problems small firm lawyers are having. And if you are trying to solve those problems and answer those questions and do that work in your firm, you should be applying for lab because it will just give you a programmatic way to solve those problems. Yeah. And so our third class started now in November and we're already starting to accept applications and recruit for class number four, which will launch in February. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can go to lawyerist.com lab to see the application and find out more about the program. We would love to see you. The other thing we launched this past week is a new product portal rating and comparing CRM and marketing automation platforms for law firms. Yeah, this is a really cool set of tools that a lot of you are probably using and a lot of you probably aren't yet, but should be. Client intake, CRM, marketing automation are all different aspects and different ways to think about capturing all of the potential clients that enter your orbit, um, making sure that you take care of them, track them, figure out which ones enter your firm and take care of them during that process. Nurture even would be the jargon here. And make sure that you understand how that process works and what the KPIs or the, the data that you need to track looks like. And so if you are actively in the market shopping for CRM intake marketing automation software, you should check out the portal and we can help you make the right decision about what's the best fit for your firm. If you aren't and don't have it and aren't even aware of it, you should go there and learn more because I think it is an important part of a future-oriented law firm to have tools in place to answer those questions. You can find the CRM portal on the website by clicking on the nav menu topics and under client service. And you can find out more about the lab by going to lawyers.com and clicking on the community tab on the nav menu and it's under join. We hope to see you in one of those. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with George Saharis from Clio, and then we'll jump into my conversation with Michelle. My name is George Saharis, and I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Clio. Hey, George. Thanks for being with us again today. And uh, for the listeners, I think it's worth previewing an upcoming podcast that I'm going to have with you in two weeks. And we are going to be talking about the state of small law, the state of the legal industry. But maybe you could talk a little bit to start with about what the legal industry looks like and what all this noise about disruption is. Do you have some examples of that? Yeah, absolutely, Sam. I think year over year, we're seeing more and more examples of disruption in the space. And in 2018 in particular, there are a few examples that jump out uh, that were really worth noting. 
I think uh, one is a $500 million round raised by LegalZoom. I think that's a tremendous amount of money, and it's coupled with a, an integration they have with a provider called Clause uh, that helps build smart contracts and really targets that automated section of, of the legal market yeah. and looks to introduce process automation. So that's a big one. I think a, a second example, and somewhere we're seeing a lot of development, is in big four accounting firms acquiring legal presences. So in the UK, it's, it's possible for accounting providers like KPMG and uh, PwC and others to acquire uh, law firms. A good example of that would be Riverview Law acquired by Ernst & Young or EY as they're known now as an alternative legal service provider. So we see them uh, acquiring law firms that have a UK presence, but also US offices and have non-legal firms owning legal practices. And a third and perhaps most interesting example is a company called Atrium Law. So they announced a $65 million venture capital round and they have this unique business model where they both develop a technology designed as a platform to run a legal practice, but also uh, have a legal services delivery arm where lawyers provide legal advice with a special emphasis on uh, startups and tech companies that are looking to get rolling. So a lot of developments and a lot of examples of change that's uh, hitting the industry this year. Yeah, for sure. So that's part of the backdrop. And maybe you could talk about why Clio decided to do the legal trends report. I mean, you guys, obviously, you sell practice management software to lawyers, and you're you're leading that category, and especially for cloud-based practice management software. Um, so what is it to you uh, what that disruption looks like in the legal industry? Yeah, great question. I think for us, what we realized was that there was no real source to go and get information on the current state of affairs in legal, especially no source driven by uh, source data, like what's actually going on in legal practices. And moreover, nothing really specific to small firms. We saw a lot of surveys or information available for big law and AMLA 200, but nothing that really targeted the many, many solo and small firm practices out there. And we realized that uh, as a growing technology vendor, we uh, had access to a lot of this data that we can make available to the industry to educate uh, the profession on, on where we're at. And over time, have started growing the report. Uh, we're into our third year publishing it, where we cover both kind of law firm operational metrics, like how are legal practices performing, what prices are they charging for their services, and stuff like that. Uh, we've expanded it to include information on things like clients and, and consumers even. What are they thinking about when they're looking to find a lawyer or when they're working with a lawyer and what drives client satisfaction? So. We saw a real opportunity to provide access to unique information that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's information that we use already to educate ourselves on how to build better product for the legal profession and uh, decided to, to move ahead in publishing it and are excited to continuously improve the report year over year. I mean, I don't think there really is much else like it. You know, the ABA had been doing a technology survey for years, um, but I think it was rightly criticized for being sort of big law centric and maybe even Luddite centric. And whereas you got a body of aggregated data coming out of Clio users, and then you've gone and gotten more data from the legal industry, from legal customers as well. Uh, I don't think there's really anything else like it, which is why I'm so excited to bring you on the podcast for a full episode on what we can learn from the Legal Trends Report, because I don't think most lawyers really understand the industry in a big picture way, and I'm excited to give them a peek at it. So that's what we'll be doing in two weeks. Likewise, very excited to to be uh, participating in the podcast and excited to kind of tie the observations and key takeaways from the Legal Trends Report into a sort of state of the union conversation, you know, in terms of what we can uh, realize or understand about where the profession is at and where if we uh, work together and, and are data driven in our approach, uh, where we can take things. Because I think there are a lot of really exciting and interesting opportunities to improve. And as I like to joke around, not all of them involve uh, 
a robot lawyer apocalypse where machines replace humans. I mean, uh, there there are some surprising <laughs> findings from the data on what people are looking for in a lawyer. I'll, I'll, I don't want to spoil it for people, but George, where can people go get a copy of the Legal Trends Report if they want to prep or if they just want to know it? Yeah, I mean, the, the simplest thing you can do is available for, for free online for download. So you can head to the Clio website or, of course, trust the old Google Legal Trends Report and uh, click on one of the, the search results. And we'll obviously throw a link in the show notes. Yeah, the uh, best place to find it directly is Clio.com, C-L-I-O.com forward slash L-T-R, uh, which of course is the abbreviation for Legal Trends Report, and you can uh, grab copyright from there. Sounds great. Thanks so much, George. Can't wait to talk to you in a couple weeks. Likewise. Super excited. Looking forward to it. My name is Michelle Falcon. I am based in Toronto, Canada, and I own a hospitality company that owns and operates restaurants and venues in the third largest city in North America. And our competitive advantage is leveraging something I call the people first culture, which allows us to build experiences for customers, our employees, and our community by developing strategies to win over customers and anybody that interacts with our brand. Well, thanks for being with us, Michelle. What specifically the names of your restaurants are Borrow, right? Am I saying that right? Yes, you're saying it correctly. Borrow is our flagship location. It's a Latin American themed venue, uh, which is four floors, 16,000 square feet, uh, over 100 employees. So it's much more than just a restaurant. Uh, on any given month, we would welcome tens of thousands of guests wow. every month. Uh, so it's a complex business with a lot of moving parts. Our second property is a place called Petty Cash, which is more of a bar. And uh, we have a third venue in the pipeline, which will open uh, April of next year. And uh, that would be uh, an Asian-themed venue, which will also be large format, about 75 employees, two floors, uh, 7,000 square feet. So uh, we don't make it easy on ourselves, (laughs) but uh, we enjoy what we do and uh, our strategies and processes that we leverage for our company culture, our customer experience, and our employee engagement have all been designed to be replicated uh, across our portfolio, uh, but also uh, in many other industries. Uh, I do a lot of advising for organizations across different industries, different sizes, and keynote speak. And of course, I'm an author as well. Yeah, which is why we're talking to you in part. So let's dive into that subject of people first culture, which is what you wrote about in your book, which is our book club pick for the month of November. And um, and so we wanted to talk to you more about that and, and tease out some of the ideas in it. So you mentioned that it's your approach in your companies. Uh, and maybe you could just kind of explain what you mean by people first culture. What should we take away from that concept? Yeah. So on the surface, it's quite easy to understand. It is operating and building a business that your customers and employees will admire. Hmm. Now, Every organization is going to tell you that they deliver a a great experience uh, to their clients, their customers, their guests, or whatever they might call them. Mm -hmm. Some companies will tell you that they also deliver a great experience to their employees, similar to the experiences that they deliver to their best client. Uh, But the fact of the matter is is some companies win and, and some fall short. And the book introduces a concept I call the 3P strategy, which allows an organization to build a people-first culture genuinely, and not just for a year, but for decades, and allows them to win within their industry, regardless of how competitive it might be. And the 3P 
stand for purpose, process, and the outcome is profit. And uh, I'm not suggesting that profit should not be a focus uh, of your business. It, it absolutely should, and, and it is with mine, and, and I'm sure it is with the individuals listening to this podcast. But it's how do you approach earning the profit? Mm-hmm. And that's what the, the book uh, describes. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I, I would just finish reading Profit First. And then I read your book, um, <laughs> where, and and I sh- and so I chuckled about that. But uh, the concept in profit first is not that you should ignore people and process. It's that when you are doing your accounting, you take your profit out first, which is a totally different thing. But got it. <laughs> anyway, I thought that that made me laugh. <laughs> you start out the book talking about culture, but you before you do that in the book, you make it clear that this book is going to be more functional. Like this is about how to do things. And so because we've spent some time talking about culture and values and vision and mission and things on the podcast, I want to kind of gloss over that because there were some really interesting things and subjects and ideas in the book that I thought might be more interesting to talk about than getting caught up in geeking out on culture, which we often do. (laughs) So if that's all right with you, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to kind of drag you um, into one of the first things, uh, which really struck a chord with me, which is part of your idea of people first is really starting with your employees because happy employees will help with happy clients, uh, which Tracy Ivanishin already talked about quite a lot with us um, about leveraging your happy employees. But a piece of that that you said was really understanding what your employees' goals are going to be and then helping them achieve those, even if it means that they will leave the company. Yes. One of the things that I recommend is that to truly build a people-first culture, uh, you must understand the purpose of the company, the purpose of your customers, uh, and then a purpose of your employees. Now, I have many people that report into me, and it's my responsibility as their leader is to understand intimately what is their purpose as an individual, mm-hmm. not as a team member, but as an individual, because at the end of the day, they are an individual before they are an employee. So, for example, uh, I reference this example in the book, but I have a, a gentleman named Jordan Lopez, and he's our marketing manager, and he reports into me, and his goal is to build a digital marketing agency of his own. So he's essentially telling me, I'm going to leave your company one day. Mm-hmm. And some may view that as a threat. For me, it's an opportunity to live within the people-first culture. If your team members see your organization as a springboard to greatness, whether that's with the company as the vice president of marketing or some senior role they aspire to grow into, or if they're using your organization as a springboard to achieve something else, so be it. Even if that's one day to be one of your competitors. Yeah. And if I had an individual tell me, I'm going to start a restaurant on my own. Fantastic. Let's do this together. Yeah. Because ultimately, they're going to do it on their own with or without you. <laughs> right. It's better to know <laughs> that this is their plan for one thing. But I would think so, too. And I'm not paralyzed by paranoia that somebody is going to sabotage my business. I'm confident in the way that we recruit and interview that we would filter those people out. Um, I talk about the interview process in the book that has allowed us to build uh, people with high integrity. Now, might I get caught with my pants down one time and and maybe be uh, wronged? 
so be it. But, you know, I'm also potentially going to cross the street one day and God forbid I get hit by a car, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean I'm not leaving my house. You know, it's one of the things that I don't have good numbers on how long people stay with a company, but my guess is that on average, it's somewhere between three and, you know, 12 years or something. And, you know, so if somebody tells you that they're going to leave, like, like Jordan, and, and I was curious to know if he's still with your company because of the example you, you talked about in the book, but, uh, he's leaving in January. Is he to start his own firm? He is. Yes. Very cool. As a matter of fact, after this podcast, I have the, he is involved in the interview process to find his replacement. Oh, cool. So that's a testament. Yeah. That's a testament to this working. Yeah. But. Awesome. Well, I, I mean, yeah. I was going to say, like, you know, I think typically people probably only stay with the company on average, you know, I don't know, maybe five years or so. And so, you know, if if they want to leave and you're like, yeah, I mean, commit to here, I'm going to help you grow to the point where you can do that. And that's going to take you three to five years. And we're going to get that great commitment out of you because we're working together towards your goals. I mean, that's a better five years than somebody who leaves after three or four years because they're just unhappy or just bored or want to move on. So why not? Why not help? Yeah. And and there's a mutual understanding that I'm going to help you get to your goal whatever it might be, with mm-hmm. or without the company. But along that way, I ask you to give yourself to the organization and ensure that your transition is exceptional, yeah. which is what's happening later this afternoon. Hmm. So like, this is where companies fall short, and this is their problem, is that there's a divide between the relationships that, that they have in their personal life and the ones that they have in their business life. To give you a concrete example, when I cook dinner for my mother, do I think, what's the ROI of doing this? <laughs> of, cor- of course not. That, that would be psychotic. It's because I care for my mother and she cares for me. And whether that's a mother, a niece, a nephew, or whoever it might be, but yet our thought process when it comes to relationships with people within our business or outside of our businesses, you know, what is, what are the dollars and cents? That's our knee jerk reaction. That's a problem in building relationships. It's not authentic. Now I am very profit driven. It's just how I go about that. Mm -hmm. If I know if I'm going to do something in my business to strengthen the relationship with my customer, business partners, vendors, the media, whoever it might be, if I see the value, I'm going to do it. Even if the ROI is 12 to 24 months away, because I build and believing relationships and I'm, I'm betting on humanity that if I serve people, well, the universe will sort me out. (laughs) I I love that. And and I, I absolutely subscribe to that too, but it's, it is hard to explain to people um, or to persuade people on that when we, we live in a world now where everything is trackable and, you know, we want to see the ROI of every single link we place on in the internet and every single hand we shake and every single hour we spend to just say, no, 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 I trust that the universe will sort it out. It feels very daring. <laughs> it, it is, perhaps. But if it works I every time. had the right... Well, if I have the right intentions and I do get wrong, so be it. Mm-hmm. I can sleep well at night. I like that. And you can't protect yourself from everything. Right. And you know what? We Majority of companies aren't publicly traded, so you're not reporting to the street mm-hmm. every three months. <laughs> like This is the advantageous of being a privately held organization is that we can do these things without 
with investors, you know, hounding us for some, for, you know, ROI statements. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we come back, we're going to talk about another of your ideas or concepts around owning the dinner table, which actually has nothing to do with the fact that you're a restaurant. So we'll be right back to talk about that. Smokeball practice management software exists to streamline small law firms and reduce the stress of running a small business. With Smokeball, your firm is much more organized, productive, and profitable, meaning you and your staff can breathe easy with less stress. Visit smokeball.com slash lawyers today to learn more and book a demo. Like what you see? Lawyerist podcast listeners are eligible for 50% off onboarding. With Smokeball at your firm, it's less stress and more success. If you're not 100% happy with your law practice right now, chances are you want more. More income from your practice, more fulfillment from your work, and more freedom to enjoy your life. There is a new law business model that is allowing passionate attorneys to reclaim their lives and love practicing law again. Alexis Neely has been training lawyers for over a decade on the new law business model she created to build her own million-dollar law practice. And now, the lawyers she has trained in that new law business model have their own high six- and seven-figure law practices, all without sacrificing time with their families and only working with clients they love to serve. It is possible to experience the exhilaration of a thriving law practice, do the most meaningful legal work, have a real impact in your clients' lives, and have complete control over your schedule. Discover this new law business model now by watching the free video workshop series at newlawbusinessmodel.com lawyerist. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those who use traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can easily accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 48 state bars. LawPay. Michelle, okay, we're back. And so I teased the idea of owning the dinner table, which is one of the things you talk about in a a number of different ways in your book. And it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that you are in the hospitality industry and own a couple of restaurants with your business partners. So maybe you can explain what owning the dinner table is all about. It's about creating relationships with anyone that interacts with the brand that encourages somebody to go home and talk about the experience that our organization delivered to them with their trusted family members uh, or friends. Now, I want to create experiences that our customers, our employees, our vendors, the media have never seen before in this industry because that acts as one of our competitive advantages. Mm-hmm. Now, to do that, we have 150 people in our organization, and we went from zero dollars in revenue and zero employees to 150 employees and $15 million in revenue in, in two years. So that's that's vast growth. Mm-hmm. And how we've managed that growth is by delivering experiences that the market hasn't seen before. So there are things that we do that happen behind the scenes that only our operations team know are happening that allow us to create these experiences to own the dinner team. And essentially, that's a, a new way of describing word of mouth marketing. Yeah. And if you if you think about it, somebody many decades ago, I'm assuming, put the word marketing behind word of mouth, <laughs> and we attributed that to a marketing function. But if we think what. I will encourage people to spread positive word of mouth. It's experiences. It's not because your logo is cool. 
Hmm. It's because of the experience that they had with your brand. Perhaps it was a great product experience, or maybe it was a great service experience. So to decipher the two, a great product experience would be if you're an Apple fan, you're going to spread positive word of mouth of the latest iPhone. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe Apple would be Apple today if they provided a poor customer experience. Because if you compare Apple and Samsung, two companies that have very similar products, as a matter of fact, some individuals might say Samsung has the better product. But what is undeniable is that nobody has ever enthusiastically told me of a Samsung retail experience. Right, because they don't even have a store, I don't think. (laughs) They do. They do have stores. That's how little you know about it. They have stores. (laughs) They do. That's how little awareness they have because nobody ever talks about their service experience. Now, compare Apple. Apple has is two things. They're product-centric and customer-centric, and they have a great retail experience. And there's a reason why Apple is number one and Samsung is number two. Yeah. It's because they're able to balance the two. Now, if you think of uh, the audience that is listening to this podcast, you can be great at your skill in, in litigation, mm-hmm. but what if your clients came to your office and it was cold and not welcoming and and it took forever for you to respond to their emails or their any point of contact like just because you're good doesn't mean that you have earned the right to earn their business just on skill set you need to be skill focused in whatever you do but then also concentrate client experience to ensure that you protect yourself from your competitors and and thrive for decades. I feel like we're in this place where the market is starting to insist that we want things to go smoothly and we want ideally to be delighted or impressed by those interactions and it feels like that's starting to happen kind of across the board where um, consumers expect more of the companies they do business with and the people that they do business with, whether it's a, you know, whether it's dining out or um, whether it's uh, your electronic, getting your electronics repaired or hiring a lawyer. You, you had some, uh, some interesting ideas in the book that I want to share. I love the way that you've authorized your, you have kind of a, a budget for creating micro customer experiences. And um, I think it's interesting because you say that it's really important to do a small thing, not a big thing. Because if you bought, you know, if you authorize your employees to um, spend lavishly on customers, then everybody would get a free bottle of champagne and nobody would remember it. Mm -hmm. And a micro customer experience is a small, memorable and affordable gesture that you do for your your customers, your clients that resonates with them for years. Mm -hmm. And we have a modest budget per month and our flagship location will do over $10 million a year in revenue and our monthly budget for gifting and delivering micro customer experiences is only $250 a month. And it's by design that it is that amount because if it was a big budget, ideas would come to you a lot more freely. Mm-hmm. But once the, when the budget's small, you're having to get more creative to be able to deliver this experience to that guest that they've never seen before, to be able to do this effectively in any industry, you must teach your employees to listen and take action on what you have heard. We have done our employees a massive disservice by telling them to listen to your customers Hmm. because listening is a cheap skill set. 
It's what you do with the customer or client intelligence that allows you to create that experience. Listening is easy. Taking action on what you heard is where kind of the rubber hits the road. And that allows us to create these experiences for our customers and create this culture where 150 employees want to do this to earn that customer loyalty. So do you have some examples of what kinds of micro customer experiences have gone through and, and if they've worked and that yes. kind of stuff? Yes, absolutely. I'd so love to hear about them. Sticking to the theme of listening and take action, uh, we had a server named Alyssa uh, attending to four women that had joined us for brunch. And Alyssa learned just by way of conversation that the reason that those ladies were getting together was because one of the women at the table was due to give birth in a month. Mm. And this was probably going to be the last time that they were going to be able to get together as a group for a while. So Alyssa went to our hostess den and we, she put the micro customer experience program into action. Uh, our hostess quickly ran across the street to uh, a store called Shoppers Drug Mart, which is equivalent to uh, a Walgreens in the United States, and purchased uh, wrapping paper, scotch tape, a box of 50 diapers, and a <laughs> rattle, and a card. Came back in time, wrapped the gift, gave it back to Alyssa. Alyssa goes to the table, and at time of billing, presents this gift to the customer. And I'm can tell you that the ROI of doing this mm -hmm. is more than just what the customer is feeling. Alyssa, her engagement goes up because we've given her the autonomy to create experiences that our guests have never seen before. So naturally, these customers are telling Alyssa, like, I love you. Thank you. This is amazing. So Alyssa is releasing endorphins as an employee because she's doing a great job. Yeah. There's one outcome. Everybody involved feels great. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and that increases Alyssa's tenure with the organization. Her retention goes up, her morale goes up, her productivity goes up, uh, and that's how the company wins. Uh, the customer, she'll be back. You know, once she's done having her child, she'll definitely be back. Mm -hmm. I would bet on that. Uh, she wrote a positive Facebook and Google review. There's a third outcome. Right. The fourth outcome, uh, those women at the table with her, her guests, mm -hmm. they'll be back as well too. And as a matter of fact, they're probably going to go own the dinner table for us too because right. they're going to go back to their home and be like, we just had an amazing brunch. And Kelly, who was at the table, got this gift because here's the story. And whoever heard that story at their households would probably consider coming to our venues as well too. The woman that got the gift will go home and describe this story because she's coming back with this big box and, and her partner is probably like, where did you get that? And then the story gets told on and on and on. You're basically giving people stories. Exactly. And if you yeah. want your clients to talk about your company in a positive respect, give them something worth talking about. It can't just be the bare minimum. We have to get creative to create these experiences that our clients have never seen before. And we earned all of that by a $25 or $30 gesture, whatever that cost us. And, and it wasn't a whole lot. Uh, another example is we had this couple come. Uh, they were visiting Toronto from Europe, and our bartender asked, how was your stay? And they said it was magnificent. We went to the CN Tower. We went to the, the art museum and, and, and such. 
And they said in passing, ah, but the one thing we didn't get to do is go to Morton's, which is Dunkin' Donuts equivalent. Oh, right Tim Morton's, yeah. <laughs> yes. And we never got a chance to try Timbits. Timbits, these little balls of donut. Yeah. So our bartender said, hmm, oh, that's too bad because they're really good. Yeah. Goes to our hostess stand. The hostess stand sprints over to Tim Hortons, gets a box of Timbits, comes back in time, and instead of ordering dessert, we just dropped them out on a platter and said, here are your Timbits because they were on their way to the airport. Yeah. And this was their last meal that they were having. That's an experience that they've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And guess what? These people, these guests were from Europe. When's the next time they're going to come to Toronto? Mm -hmm. Probably never, never. But we're not asking ourselves that, right? It's just a good thing to do. Well, and and they're going to talk, you're going to own their dinner tables because they're going to tell that story and and somebody will come visit from Europe. So um, maybe. Perhaps. But but even even if not, it's cool. It makes us feel good. And that's good business. I we recently had a podcast um, with John Strohmeyer about um, his experience at the Four Seasons and him talking about like what makes the Four Seasons experience the Four Seasons experience. And my takeaway was very similar to what you're saying uh, about owning the dinner table. That it's listening and taking action really is is the core of of everything. Where you know it's not about sending holiday cards which are forgettable or sending a, a bottle of bourbon which is forgettable. It's sending the right bottle of bourbon at the right time to the right person or something completely different because it's not the value of the gift it's the thought that goes into it that is what creates the story and what creates the value and and what makes the customer or the client or the or whatever take that story home and and spread the word of mouth absolutely and i have a recommendation uh if anyone listening to this podcast plans on launching a micro customer experience program within their business uh, follow the steps in the book, yep. and it, it's quite easy to execute. Contact me if, if I can be of any assistance and, and guidance. But when you're doing the gifting, be willing to say no to experiences that aren't memorable. Yeah. We had um, a, a, a team member go to our manager on duty one day and say, hey, I want to launch a micro-customer experience program or gesture. These customers are going to a concert. Can we send them in an Uber? And the manager respectfully declined. Mm-hmm. It's not good enough. No. You know, it's not memorable enough. Ask yourself, could our competitors do this? Is this type of stuff our competitors would be doing? And if they, if you say yes, then don't do it. Mm-hmm. Do something even better than what your competitors are doing. Like buying flowers and all that, like that's nice, but it's been done before. They've mm-hmm. seen that before. I, I want to pivot to the last thing I want to talk about, which is your approach to resolving customer complaints. And, and you have a process around that that is designed to not assume that the customer is right, but to try and get a resolution from that interaction, which I think is especially valuable in the age of online reviews, um, which has a lot of people worried, but a lot of lawyers in particular are tearing their hair out over that. So maybe you could talk about your approach to resolving customer complaints in a way that hopefully leaves everyone feeling okay about the transaction. Absolutely. The the first thing is your mentality. You got to get your mind right. (laughs) <laughs> this isn't an, an attack on your company. It's an opportunity to create an experience for the client that they've never seen before. Because I'm going to believe that every single time a customer has complained to us that they've been failed by the company that they have brought forth their feedback to. You know, if, if we think of ourselves as consumers, more often than not, we have a poor experience when we bring forth feedback. So this is your opportunity 
as an operator to change that for that person. So get your mind right. It's not an attack. Leave your ego at the door. Hmm. Right? I, as proud professionals, immediately our guard goes up. But just humble yourself and allow yourself to think maybe we are in the wrong. That is the first thing that you have to get is get your mind right and follow something that I reference in the book. It's an acronym. An acronym. It's L-A-S-T or LAST. Uh, listen diligently. Listen to understand. Don't listen to respond. And if you're able to intimately listen, that not only appeases the guests, but it also sets yourself up for success mm-hmm. to be able to resolve the complaint. Next is A, accept. Accept what you have heard. Tell the guest or the client, you know, I, I hear you just so that we're on the same page. This is the story that you've just told me, or this is the experience you've just uh, told me. So get the client to verify, yes, you heard me correctly, mm-hmm. just so that there's no loose ends or nothing slips in between the cracks. Uh, next is, is sympathize. Show empathy, sympathize and show empathy, but it's not an admission of guilt. Right. You shouldn't be saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe Linda did that to you because you haven't done your investigation yet. Right. I don't believe the customer is always right. Yeah. I don't. There are customers who go into doing business premeditated that they're going to try to cheat and steal. Yeah. Or they're just wrong. <laughs> Or they're wrong. Yeah. yeah. Or they misinterpreted. Yeah. The, the last is where you tell the guest or the client, thank you for bringing forth this information. These, This is what I'm going to do next. I have to do a bit of an internal investigation to understand where we may have failed you. And language is important where I, where we may have failed you, not where we failed you. Mm-hmm. Because we haven't even done an investigation yet. So you'll go back. And you'll, you'll tell the guests or the client, um, we will be back in touch with you within one business day, right? Set a service level agreement, tell them when you're going to get back to them and adhere to that timeline. That's the most important part. Remember, this person has right. brought forth feedback. You cannot make it worse by not adhering to the timeline that you have set. <laughs> right. Allow them to approve that timeline. So is it okay if I'm back in touch with you within one business day? Yes, absolutely. Okay, great. Now go do your investigation. If you're in the wrong, resolve the complaint to appease the customer. If you're not in the wrong, follow up with the client and provide evidence. Maybe have call recording mm-hmm. would, that you could share with them. Maybe you have an email thread. Um, but you're not, what do you, what do you, how do you think about if there's a fact in dispute and you can't tell whether or not you're wrong, then side with the guest. You just assume that that's when you assume they're right. Yes. Okay. Now track that behavior though, Mm -hmm. track that because if the customer comes back and and complains for a third and fourth time uh, within their tenure of doing business with you, you're, they're probably screwing you yeah. over. And now, and now, and now you can fire the customer, mm-hmm. fire the client. Yeah. We've done that before because the customer is not always right. And I argue that all the time. And because if a client belittles your team members, that starts to hurt your culture. And if your team sees that you're not willing to defend them, well, what kind of leader are you? Mm-hmm. You you can, it's much easier to replace a client than it is to replace a loyal employee. Mm-hmm. 
And that's why I don't believe the customer is always right. Yeah. This resonated with me because I really like your perspective on you need to listen and you need to accept what they've said, essentially affirming their version of their complaint by repeating it back to them by which is a really useful tool in conversation and communication to here's what I understand you to be saying. But then the sympathize, which is not, I understand what you did and I feel terrible that that happened. It's more of, um, I understand that you feel that way and I can, and I, I realize why you would feel that way given the story you just told me. And then you go and investigate and try and figure it out and try to resolve it, which is a much better story to tell. And really maybe even goes back to owning the dinner table sometimes by keeping topics off discussion or creating a new one. Yes. And I believe that a client that has had their complaints successfully resolved will become more loyal to the brand than if nothing happened at all because they are so used to having complaints and negative feedback fall on deaf ears. Hmm. I, I mentioned at the outset that we are using your book um, as the, the selection for this month's Lawyers Book Club, Business Book Club pick. And so hopefully all of our listeners will have already been reading it and this podcast will be something that's interesting. But if, if you haven't read the book yet, folks, you should run out and get it. Um, Michelle, thanks so much for talking with us about people first culture, owning the dinner table and everything else we touched on. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, if there's any questions or if uh, any of the listeners want to connect, uh, I can be found online at Michelle Falcon. Absolutely. And those links and your social profiles will be in our show notes. So thanks so much. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Oh,